Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. We begin this morning a new series in the book of Revelation. And this is one that we have not tackled in our church's history. And um, it's been requested a number of times. And I've, I've been hesitant to do it for a number of reasons, but I think the time is right for us to do it. And so we're calling the series Apocalypse. That just means Revelation. That's the word that's used in the beginning of the book to describe what's going on. Revelation chapter 1, and if you've turned there, we're going to read uh, the first seven verses. Really, the, the message today is just the first three verses, but we're going to read the first seven just to get the context. So uh, if you're in Revelation chapter 1, follow along with me as I read Revelation 1, 1 through 7, I'll read. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. and Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. <clears throat> if you ask most Christians what the book of Revelation is about, <clears throat> they would probably say it's about eschatology or end times. Beyond that, ideas are probably pretty fuzzy. There's beasts and trumpets and angels and bulls and creatures and a harlot and Jesus is in there too. Depending on the church you grew up in, you might have a more detailed understanding about things like the millennium, the rapture, the great white throne judgment, and you may even have charts that you've learned about what's coming next and the timeline of our world. And studies about thing, things like this can be popular. In my childhood, movies like A Thief in the Night and A Distant Thunder were very popular in Christian circles. Hal Lindsey's 1970 book, Late Great Planet Earth, sold 28 million copies in two decades. It was the largest selling nonfiction book of the entire decade of the 70s. More recently, the 16 Left Behind novels sold over 65 million copies, as much as the Hunger Games trilogy, more than the books that the Game of Thrones series is based on. Three of the Left Behind novels hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Along with material like this have come the predictions, and those go all the way back to early days all the way through the Middle Ages and right on up into the present. But if we go back just as far as 1843, William Miller predicted Jesus' return within a year. His followers, the Millerites, 
responded in various ways when that prediction failed to come true. Some came to believe that in 1843, Jesus had not come to earth, but to the heavenly tab tabernacle for his wedding. And it's from this group that the Seventh-day Adventists are descended today. Another man who learned from the Millerites was Charles Taze Russell. He and his followers taught that Jesus took the throne in 1878 and that the end of troubles, the end of Armageddon, would be in 1914. Ironically, the beginning of World War I. And Russell co-founded the Watchtower Society, which became what we know today as the Jehovah's Witnesses. In 1988, Edgar Wisnant published his book, 88 Reasons the Rapture Will Be in 1988, which was republished the next year, slightly edited to be 89 Reasons the Rapture Will Be in 1989. In 1994, Harold Camping published his book, Are You Ready?, which predicted Jesus' return in September of 1994. He later published two more books, We're Almost There, and To God Be the Glory, which predicted the rapture on May 21st, 2011, and the end of the world on October 21st of the same year. And then we had the year 2000 and the Y2K scare and a host of end time predictions that came with that. And Jack Van Impe, who died two years ago, taught that the current Pope would be presiding during Armageddon, that Christianity and Islam would join to create Chrislam, that the European Union and Islam are the two iron legs of the statue in Daniel's dream, and that all signs had been fulfilled for Christ's return to be very, very soon. Now, here's why I bring all of that up. That's not what the book of Revelation is for. We won't be reading it that way. The goal is not predicting the future and trying to tie it to current headlines. What all of those examples have in common is they're wrong. Now, some of us may have a tendency to want to read the book of Revelation that way. And if that's the case for you, I hope to show you that the book of Revelation can be understood as Jesus intended it without all that stuff. Now, others might be on the other end of the spectrum. You might be burned out on Revelation studies. You've heard all the prophecies and they don't come true. Or it all just seems weird and complicated and too difficult and, and irrelevant for today. And if that's the case for you, I hope to show you that it is profitable for us to study. It is worth our time when we listen to what it's saying. So how should we study the book of Revelation? Well, I'm going to give you um, the kind of four standard approaches that there are to how we should study these book, this book. And you don't need to remember these terms. The terms are not important. Just by preface, the book is written by the Apostle John. <clears throat> John was one of Jesus' disciples. This is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. And he wrote the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He writes here in Jewish apocalyptic literature. So it's unusual for us. We have to work to understand it. It's like going to a foreign country. It helps to learn the language so that you can communicate and understand what they're saying. And so we're going to have to kind of learn the language as we go. But here's the four different approaches. The first approach is the historicist approach. This approach sees what's in the book of Revelation as symbolic of the sweep of church history. 
So maybe the letters to the seven churches are seven eras of church history characterized by the things that these seven churches are characterized by. And the beast in Revelation 13 is the rise of Islam in the seventh century. The prostitute and the beast in Revelation 17 suggests the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church. And everything is symbolic of the history from the time of Christ until his return. That's the historicist way of understanding it. A second view is the futurist. This has been the most popular view in the last century or two. It's the one represented by all of those examples that I gave you. This view also usually sees the letters to the seven churches as representing different ages of the church, and it sees us in particular as being in the last age, the last church, the church to Laodicea, the lukewarm church. And then everything in Revelation from chapter 4 on to the end of the book is events that are still future, things that will happen right around the time of Jesus' return. That's the futurist view. The idealist says that the kinds of events symbolized in Revelation are always happening throughout every time period in, church, in the church. So we can learn from these things because we can always look around and see similar things happening in our day. But the events in Revelation aren't speaking of any particular historical events. They're ideal or poetic. That's the idealist view. And the last is the preterist view, and the word just means past. This view sees the events of Revelation as referring to real historical events, but ones that are, for the most part, already past. They were yet future in John's day while he was writing, but they came to pass in short order after Revelation was written. So John was writing to people who were going to experience the events that he was writing about. I personally take this last view, just like when we read Matthew 24. We studied that chapter together, Jesus' Olivet Discourse. We saw that Jesus said, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Well, so in the book of Revelation, we are told that these things must soon take place and that the time is near. And when we read it that way, I think it comes, becomes much easier to understand what John is writing about. Now, you don't have to take the same approach that I do. You might interpret it differently. This is not something of ultimate importance. Okay? Like the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day, that he ascended into heaven where he is ruling and reigning. That's, there's no discussion on that. That's a closed hand issue for us. How we interpret Revelation is not at that level of importance. That's not to say, though, that it's unimportant. It does make a difference. It makes a difference even in how you view your life today and how you should live in response to what's going on around you. So I don't want to say that it's unimportant. What I do want to say is it's okay if we disagree on it. We don't need to split up and find different churches because of it. So those are the four basic approaches to interpreting. And there's one other thing regarding interpretation that's really important for us to understand before we jump into that, this book. And that is this. The best way to interpret Revelation is to let the Old Testament be our guide. Okay, to let the Old Testament be our guide. Here's why. There are 404 verses 
in the book of Revelation. Of those 404 verses, 278 of them contain some kind of quote or allusion from the Old Testament. John clearly used the Old Testament in writing the book of Revelation, and he expected that his readers would know the Old Testament. And that's, by the way, a big part of why we have trouble interpreting it, I think. We don't know our Bible as well as we should. This is a very Jewish book. It uses Jewish language and ideas. It uses lots of signs and symbols. In verse 1, the phrase, made it known, that we read, is literally signified or signified. Put it into signs and symbols. Now, where did John get his signs and symbols? Well, mostly from the Old Testament. Some, as well, from the surrounding culture and geography of the day in which he lived, but primarily from the Old Testament. And once you understand the message of the book, you see why that's completely appropriate. So each week, plan to have your Bible open, along with your Revelation journal, if you're using that. And if you're using that, you can kind of stay open in Revelation and flip to the passages we'll look at elsewhere in the Bible and compare them and see the connections. And I think you'll find that helpful. I thought it might be a good idea, before we go farther, to just give one example of interpretation and, and what difference it makes, okay, and how we, how we should understand these things. One well-known thing that is in the book of Revelation is a mark that people might get on their forehead. So see if you can fill in the blank. The mark of the beast. Okay, so turn to Revelation 13. Revelation 13. In this chapter, there are two beasts described. And we're looking at the second one, Revelation 13. And we're going to start in verse 16 and just read a couple of verses. All right, Revelation 13, starting in verse 16. And here's what it says. Also it, the beast causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. All right, so we have a mark on the right hand or the forehead. That is the name of the beast or its number. And today you have a lot of Christians suggesting that the vaccine or the vax pass is the mark of the beast. Now, I do not think a vaccine pass is a good idea. I think it opens the door to the social credit system, which is horrible for a variety of reasons. It's unbiblical. It's ungodly. But it's not the mark of the beast. Okay? Those who are marked with this mark in Revelation 13 show up again in chapter 14, chapter 16, 19, and 20. And by the way, what does 666 indicate? Well, it's the number of a particular man. And yes, I think we can identify who that is. But we'll save that for when we get to Revelation 13. And no, it's not Donald Trump or Kamala Harris or Dr. Fauci. Tempting though that may be. Now, when I mentioned a mark on the forehead, and I said the mark of the Everybody that answered said beast. I didn't hear anyone say lamb. Nobody said mark of the lamb. Why? 
Let me show you a few verses. Revelation chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Revelation 9. The locusts were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Or Revelation 14. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and the Father's name written on their foreheads. Revelation 22, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. So there's a mark of the beast, and there's a mark of the Lamb. And the great prostitute in Revelation 17 also has something on her forehead. On her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. What are we to make of all of these marks on foreheads? Remember our principle of interpretation. Let's go to the Old Testament. And there's two important places for us to look at this idea. First one is Deuteronomy 6. Now, these two passages are the only places I'm going to have you turn this morning outside the book of Revelation. So turn with me to Deuteronomy 6. This is a well-known passage. This is what we call the Shema. You get down to verse 4. It's here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These are verses that are familiar to us. These are verses that were regularly recited by the Jewish people. But look what we find when we get to verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. This is where we get the idea of on the hand and the forehead. The Jewish people were to have God's word, his law, written on their forehead or on their hand. Now, the way that they would do that was ceremonially. They had it in a little box that was tied on the forehead or tied around their wrist. Uh, so it was on their hand. But this is where you get the idea of being marked on the forehead or the hand. And what is the mark? It's God's law. So God's law is to be a sign that marks your life. Your life is to be marked by God's law. Your thoughts and your actions. Okay. Now turn over to Ezekiel chapter 9. Well, I'm, I'm going to read the first six verses of chapter 9. But actually turn to Ezekiel 4. Because I'm just going to have you skim through these chapters with me to see the context before we read from chapter 9. So Ezekiel chapter 4. <clears throat> Ezekiel is giving a prophecy here about an attack that is coming. Okay. So just glance with me as you look at it. Ezekiel chapter 4, maybe the heading in your Bible even says, 
the siege of Jerusalem symbolized. God's going to bring enemies to surround Jerusalem because Jerusalem has been wicked. Now, when you hear that, your mind might go back to the series we just did in Matthew 24, because it's very, very similar. Ezekiel is talking about something that's happening 600 years before the time of Christ, but it's very similar to what happens in Jesus' day and what Jesus prophesies as well in that Olivet Discourse. Okay, that's chapter 4. Then if you look at chapter 5, that tells us that Jerusalem will be destroyed. Okay, the city's going to be destroyed. And the reason for this destruction is given in chapter 6. And if your Bible's like mine, the title there is Judgment Against Idolatry. They've turned away from God toward other gods. Then chapter 7 describes the day of the wrath of the Lord coming against his people. This is when this judgment actually falls. And chapter 8 is a vision that begins, and it focuses in more directly on the temple in Jerusalem and the evil that is happening there in the temple. Again, this should sound a whole lot like what Jesus talked about in his day. Okay? So now we come to chapter 9, and follow along as I read the first six verses. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. So the executioners have been called to go throughout the city of Jerusalem and to kill people in judgment for their idolatry. Now, verse 3. Now, the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So. There are some in Jerusalem who are mourning, who are sorrowful at the sins that they see committed in the city. And the mark is to be put on those individuals, on their forehead. Verse 5, and to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. So God's judgment falls on Jerusalem and the people, and the ones who are spared are those who have the mark on their forehead. <clears throat> and then in chapter 10, God's glory leaves the temple. So this whole section is judgment for Israel's unfaithfulness. And it's fulfilled in history in 586 BC when Babylon lays siege and conquers Jerusalem. <clears throat> it's an actual historical event that Ezekiel prophesied. Now, were there literal marks on their foreheads? No, it was a vision. It was symbolic. But God preserved a remnant of faithful people. And that whole thing also then functions as a shadow of what would happen to Jerusalem in AD 70, what we learned in Matthew 24 that Jesus prophesied about. 
<clears throat> the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Now, when we read Revelation 13, or when we read the whole book of Revelation, we see the marks on foreheads in the book of Revelation. With those passages in our mind, it helps us to figure out what it's all about. First of all, there's judgment coming. Ezekiel's context helps us to see this, specifically judgment on Jerusalem and the people of Israel. Those who have God's mark don't face judgment, while those who have the beast's mark will be judged by God. Second, the mark of God or of the Lamb is a mark of faithfulness. It's people whose lives are marked by obedience to God and his law, just like in Deuteronomy 6, that the, having his law on your forehead or your hand was a mark that your life is marked by faithfulness to God's law. So the mark of the lamb is not a literal mark on the forehead, but it's a life that is marked by faithfulness and obedience to God and to the lamb. And that helps us to understand the opposite mark too, the mark of the beast. It too is a mark of faithfulness and obedience but it's not obedience to God. It's obedience to the beast. It's those who submit to an ungodly anti-Christian state. So once we know who the beast is, we can ask the question, whose lives are marked by obedience or submission to the beast? And like I said, we'll get there when we get to Revelation 13. But for now, hopefully that gives you maybe a little picture of why it's important for us to understand that this book is rooted in the Old Testament. We have to go back to understand the language and the symbols if we want to understand what John is saying. Okay, let me briefly just kind of ask the question, why study Revelation? What's the reason? Number one, to correct misconceptions. Remember all the groups that I mentioned at the beginning, studies of the book of Revelation have led to all kinds of error and excess and even cults. So studying carefully and biblically will guard us against that kind of trouble and will correct misconceptions that we have. Secondly, all scripture is profitable. Second Timothy 3 tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness in order that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So God says it's worth our time to study this book. In fact, you could even say that if you avoid this book, you can't be fully equipped for every good work. So believe what God says, invest the effort to study it, and trust that God will use it in your life for your good. And then third, to obey its message. We read verses 1 through 3 of Revelation 1. Verse 3 said, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Not only are we to read and hear, we're supposed to keep this book. Obey it. There's a message we need to hear and obey. So, before we just look at those three verses, and by the way, it's like 40 minutes of introduction and just a few minutes on these three verses this morning. But I think this is helpful context for us to have as we walk into this book. Let me answer the question, what is in the book of Revelation? What's in the book? As we turn these pages, what are we going to find? Let me zoom out and kind of give you a quick sneak peek of the overall message of the book as a whole. Let's start with an outline. 
Okay, the first eight verses are the introduction. That's basically what we read this morning. And then we get into letters to the seven churches. That's up through chapter three. So the end of chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, that's letters to the seven churches. Then in chapter four and five, we have a scene in the throne room. This is kind of where the visions begin, so to speak. Chapter six, seven, and the beginning of eight, we have the seven seals. So just to explain briefly, in the throne room scene, as John looks, he sees the, very prominent in that scene is a scroll that's all rolled up and it has seven seals on it. If you can picture like a wax seal holding it closed. And as each seal is broken and that scroll begins to be unrolled, judgments come. So each of the seven seals brings more judgment. Then the end of chapter 8 down through the middle of chapter 11, we have seven trumpets. And these seven trumpets are also judgments that come. From the middle of chapter 11 through chapter 12, chapter 13, and part of chapter 14, then we have the woman, the dragon, and the beasts, which sounds like a fantasy novel of some kind or something. But that's the kind of literature this is. It's apocalyptic literature. It's symbolic stuff. And so we'll have to understand who is the woman and the dragon and who are the beasts. And then <clears throat> chapter 15 and 16, we have the seven bowls. And the bowls are also judgments. So the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are all judgments that are unfolded in this book. Then in chapter 17 and 18, in the beginning of 19, we have judgment on the harlot Babylon. So the focus is on this woman and the judgment that falls on her in these chapters. And then immediately after that, the end of chapter 19 through chapter 20, 21, and the beginning of 22, our attention is turned to a different woman, Jerusalem, the glorious bride. And then the last part of chapter 22 is final words, some exhortations that John gives. So that's a basic outline of what's coming in the book. What's the focus of the book? Well, the focus of the book of Revelation is Jesus's judgment on Jerusalem or Israel. The focus of the book is Jesus' judgment on Jerusalem or Israel. It's the same basic message that we saw in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. That's why we spent time doing Matthew 24 before we jumped into Revelation, was so that we have that context. Jesus had proclaimed judgment on Israel, on Jerusalem and the temple, because they had rejected him. And the message of Revelation is the same. It's different. It's a bit more zoomed out. It's more global in scope. It gives a big picture understanding of God's plan, a theological explanation for this shift from the old covenant to the new covenant, from Israel to the church. There's a number of different characters that appear in the book. Let me give you three important ones right now that, that just will help us to kind of get our mind around it as we get started. The lamb, the harlot, and the bride. The lamb is described as standing as if slain. So this is a lamb that died and came back to life. It's Jesus. And the whole book is really about him. The harlot is Jerusalem or Israel. In this book, she's pictured as Babylon. 
because she's unfaithful. She's forgotten her God. And just as Babylon in the Old Testament faced God's judgment, so too Jerusalem now faces God's judgment because she has rejected and killed the Messiah. And then we have the bride. The bride is the church. Jesus is faithful people. And the bride is pictured as marrying the lamb and living with him forever. Okay? So with those three characters in mind, let me give you kind of the basic storyline. Okay? So you can kind of just sit back and listen. This is the basic storyline of Revelation. John begins by establishing his authority for what he's saying. And then he tells his readers that the events that he's writing about must soon take place, for the time is near. So what he's writing directly relates to the church in the first century. When you get to verse 5 of chapter 1, John tells us that Christ is the faithful witness. He's a legal witness about to testify. And that clues us in to the legal nature of this book, and particularly of the theme that he's about to give us in verse 7. So verse 7 gives us the theme, and it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will fail on account of him. Even so, amen. Let me think about that for a minute. It says, every eye will see him. But then it qualifies it. This is Hebrew parallelism. So every eye will see him, even, or specifically, those who pierced him. Okay? So, for example, as you were following along when I read Revelation 1 this, this morning, look at verse 2. It says, John bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Okay, what's the testimony of Jesus Christ? Well, it's everything that comes in the book. Because Jesus gives this word through an angel to John. This is his legal testimony, everything that he says, right? So John bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So all that he saw, the visions, is further describing the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's what that word even means. It's Hebrew parallelism. So in verse 7, when we read, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, those who pierced him is further describing the every eye that John's talking about. Okay? And it says, all the tribes of earth will wail on account of him. That's not talking about planet earth. It's talking about earth as in dirt. Okay? So there's a, there's a particular patch of dirt that John has in mind. A particular land. Now, what land in the Bible has tribes? That's very, very prominent all throughout the Bible. It's the land of Israel. Right? It's the tribes of Israel. So when it says all the tribes of the earth or all the tribes of the land, it's talking about Israel. Who are those who pierced him? Well, in Acts 2, Peter preaches to the Jews saying, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
later in the same message, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So who are those who pierced him? It's the Jewish people. It's Israel. It's Jerusalem. And the book of Revelation details Jesus's judgment on the Jews who rejected and killed him. It's a legal case being made. And then the judgments that follow from that case. So in chapter 4, John is brought into the throne room of God. God the judge. And there he sees a sealed scroll, a legal document. When we get there, we'll talk about what that document is. But that document initiates the judgments that begin to unfold. Jesus is seen as the lamb, but not just the lamb. He's a lamb who has been slain, murdered. And that murder is the ground of the legal complaint against Jerusalem. They rejected and murdered Jesus. In chapter 5, only the lamb can unseal the scroll. And as he does so, the judgments begin. Then in chapter 6, the judgments are poured out on the earth. But just like we saw before, and like we saw in Matthew 24, the word earth is the land. Not planet earth, it's the land. Israel. That's the land on which this judgment is poured out. By chapter 10 and 11, the scroll is fully opened. And the temple in Jerusalem is trampled. And Jesus' kingdom is established. Then beginning in chapter 12, we're introduced to two women. The harlot Babylon and the bride of the Lamb. The harlot is old covenant Israel. Jerusalem, those who've been unfaithful and have rejected the Messiah Jesus. Remember, in the Old Testament, God called himself Israel's husband. And over and over, they were unfaithful to him. And what did he call it? Harlotry. Now they've committed the ultimate act of unfaithfulness. They've rejected and killed the Messiah. The bride is the faithful people of Jesus, the new Jerusalem, the new covenant church. Jesus calls himself the bridegroom, and the church is his bride. So the harlot Babylon faces God's judgment, while the bride takes her place on earth. And the climax of the story of the two women is the marriage supper of the Lamb, when Jesus takes his bride, the church, and at the same time, Christ appears as the great warrior, the rider on the white horse, the king of kings who executes judgments on Babylon. And the story finishes with the bride, the new Jerusalem, taking her place with Christ, the bridegroom, in the new heavens and earth forever. Now, let me pause to explain that scene for just a minute. There's a pattern of explaining in the book of Revelation that John uses where an angel tells him to look and see something. And when he looks, he sees something else. So, for example, in chapter 5, the angel tells John, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John looks and he sees a lamb. And what we're supposed to realize as the reader is that they are one and the same. The lion is the lamb. The same thing happens in chapter 21 when the angel tells John, come here 
and I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. The next verse says, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. We're supposed to understand the bride is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the bride. Just like the lion is the lamb, so the bride is the new Jerusalem. Old Jerusalem was old covenant Israel, the Jews. New Jerusalem is new covenant Israel, the church. In other words, the book of Revelation tells the legal complaint of Christ against Jerusalem and Israel for rejecting and murdering him. In the old covenant, God had been their husband, but now God divorces his unfaithful wife, Israel, and he takes a new bride, the church, who is presented to him as spotless and pure. If that's the message of the book, then the application is a call to faithfulness and obedience. For John's original hearers, it's in the context of their part of this persecuted church being persecuted by the Jews and eventually by Rome. But God's judgment is coming on Israel. In our context today, it's also a call to faithfulness and obedience in the context that we find ourselves in. Okay, that was the introduction. Now, we're only going to spend a few minutes looking at these verses, but look back with me again at verses 1 through 3 of Revelation 1. And there's a few things that I want you to notice. Let me just read the verses again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. The first thing I want you to just notice has to do with the communication, the word, and the authority that comes from God. Notice that it's a revelation. That's what the word apocalypse means, a revealing. To us, it seems obscure, dark, hidden. But John says it's a revelation. Ambrose Bierce was a general in the Civil War, went on to be a writer. One of the things he wrote was called The Devil's Dictionary. He gives kind of funny definitions for things. And he defines the book of Revelation this way. A famous book in which St. John the Divine concealed all that he knew. The revealing is done by the commentators who know nothing. Now, that's kind of a funny definition, but the reality is that Jesus believed and John believed that we could understand what he's saying. Second, notice that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book is about him. He's the focus. Third, notice the chain of communication and authority. God gave the revelation to Jesus. Jesus gave it to an angel. The angel gives it to John. John gives it to the churches. That means this is an important message. So we should pay attention. Now also consider the idea of this legal witness. John is bearing witness. He's testifying to the truth of what he's written. He bears witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. The testimony of Jesus Christ is Jesus's legal testimony. He testifies before the throne of the treachery and unfaithfulness of Israel. The judgments that will fall are just, they're righteous. 
But the fact that this is phrased in terms of this testimony reminds us that we can trust God's word. It's true. And he's faithful. Third, consider the idea of blessing. We're told that there's blessing for those who read, those who hear, and those who keep. In the first century church, there would typically be a reader. The reader would get the letter ahead of time, and he would read it ahead of time so he's familiar with it, so that he can read it aloud effectively when the church gathers. So the church would gather, he would read it, everyone else is the, the, the listeners, the hearers, the congregation. And they listen as the letter's read, and then they would discuss it, and their leaders, the elders, would preach, and as a church, they would talk about what they had heard. So God's telling us that it's valuable for the church to take the time to read this book, to study, to talk about it, and to understand it. But there's also a further instruction. Keep it. That means it's a letter to be obeyed. The message of Revelation is not just information to know. We're to respond to it. We're to incorporate it into how we live in this world. So my challenge to you is, read it, hear it, and keep it. Go home and read the book yourself. It takes about an hour and 15 minutes to read it from beginning to end. Pay attention. Be here on Sundays. Take notes. Ask questions. Most of all, obey it. So when it says that Jesus is coming, it's not the time of his return that we are looking forward to. This is talking about his coming in judgment. His coming in judgment. He's coming soon in judgment on Jerusalem and Israel. And then notice what John is told in chapter 22, verse 10. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Now again, the Old Testament is helpful here. In Daniel chapter 8, Daniel is given a prophecy about the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire. The Medo-Persians arrive very quickly, and the Greek Empire comes into being a couple hundred years after Daniel. But Daniel is told this in chapter 8, verse 26. Seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Seal it up, because it's a long ways away. A couple hundred years. But John is told in Revelation, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Now, for those who read this book as something that's still future, you have to ask the question, it's been 2,000 years. That doesn't seem like soon. Daniel is told, seal it up, because it's a long ways away, a couple hundred years. John is told, don't seal it up, because this is going to happen soon. Why would we think that John was being told about something that was going to happen in the 21st century, when he was told the time is near? It's about to happen. So we want to take these words seriously. We want to listen carefully to God's word. We want to be people who read hear, and keep, as verse 3 of Revelation 1 told us. In these three short verses that we began with this morning, we have quite a bit to think about regarding the communication of this message. It comes from God the Father, who gave it to Jesus. This is divine revelation. John the Baptist described God's communication 
like this. When he was sent as this precursor to Jesus, he says, he whom God has sent, Jesus, utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. So God sends Jesus, Jesus speaks the words of God, and those words are spirit-empowered. The whole trinity is involved in God's communication to us. Jesus is the word that comes from the Father. Spirit, the word spirit means breath. When we say words, think about the mechanics of you talking. When you say words, when you communicate, there's breath inside you. The words come from inside you. The breath carries it out to someone else. And the words are the content that's communicated. Jesus is the word from the Father. And it's the spirit or the breath of God that carries it out powerfully. And I comment on that this morning simply to emphasize what we've already seen. These words are important. This is divine communication. God gave it to Jesus. Jesus gave it to an angel. The angel gave it to John. John gave it to the churches, and it's been passed down to us. These are words that we need to hear, read, keep. Let's be people who are keepers of God's word. As we begin a new year, make this a year where you're committed to the word of God. To reading it, to hearing it, and above all, to keeping it, to obeying it. Lord, as we've just begun to crack open the pages of this book of Revelation, this first thing that we are struck with right off the bat is the importance of your word, the power of divine communication, but also the burden that it lays on us. And I pray that you would enable us to be people who read, hear, and keep. May we be keepers of your word. Make your word plain to us so that we understand what we're reading. Soften our hearts so that we're willing to obey, so that we are keepers of your word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.